Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Character and Smallman podcast powered by I Promise. Now here's Character and Smallman. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. It's 701, your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. With Michelle Smallman, I'm Randy Carriker. It is great to have you with us on a Thursday morning. Danny Mack is on assignment. We never get to say that, so it's fun to say that. Danny Mack is on assignment this morning. Usually he joins us on Thursday and Friday. He does, and we miss Danny Mack, but he is on assignment. Yeah, so he's doing an assignment. Good morning to you. How are you doing? Not great. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing fine. Why? Why? Well, stayed up, stayed up late to watch a power a- display, Michelle. It was a power display on the part of the Cardinals. On the part of the Cardinals. Oh yeah, I mean, just think mental about mental power to get uh, through a game after you <laughs> give up eleven runs in the first inning. I'm leaving that part out. Oh, okay, I'm we're just, just forgetting that. I'm, I'm working around that. Okay. Okay. So here's what I'm remembering from last night: first inning, Cardinals top of the first, get the lead. And hits a high fly ball into center. Backing up Bellinger at the wall. Gone! Deep center field and a 1-0 St. Louis lead. Paul Goldschmidt with home run number seven. 1-0 Cardinals. And then the Cardinals scored another in the third. And then the power continued in the fifth. (laughs) Dylan Carlson. Fly ball into the corner and right. And it's gone. Just inside the foul pole, a high towering blast off the bat of Dylan Carlson, his sixth home run. How about Dylan Carlson picking it up with the power here, second half of this road trip. Dylan, Dylan Carlson, definitely a positive from this road trip. See, Michelle? Home runs. You're seeing the, the power surge again. An unbelievable play um, two days ago that we saw from him. A great catch. So, mm-hmm. yes, Dylan Carlson, definitely a positive. See, you got to feel pretty good about that, the way the Cardinals performed last night. Now, I got to tell you, I went to upstairs to, to brush my teeth during the bottom of the first, so I don't recall what happened during the bottom of the first inning. But otherwise, I felt really good. Well, you know, I would play the highlights for you, Randy, but we don't have enough time left in the segment for me to play all of the highlights that the Dodgers had in the bottom of the first. And part of those highlights, by the way, included four walks by Carlos Martinez. Mm-hmm. He allowed six hits. He had a Brad Th- That's what we call it. When you allow 10, 11 <laughs> in the first, we call her Brad Thompson. All right, because that's what ended BT's career. I don't know if Brad's listening and is offended by that, but... That Carlos had a BT last night. He allowed 10 runs in the first inning. The Cardinals are allowed 11. Uh, according to the, the Bally bottom line, Corey Bellinger had a big first inning with six RBIs, including a grand slam, and the Dodgers won it 14-3. You can call him whatever you want, but I think maybe he earned the right to have his name uh, 
typed out correctly after the uh, game that he had yesterday. I would say so. Unbelievable from Cody Bellinger. You know, after being gone for a while with that hairline fracture, this seemed to be his feasting game. This seemed to be his get right game. And the Do- for the Dodgers in general, after their series to the Giants, needing to kind of right the ship. And boy, are they proving that they are as good as yeah. advertised. They are fantastic. And we said yesterday that you can't give the, I guess two days ago, you can't give them opportunities to beat you. When you walk the Dodgers four times in an inning, you aren't going to succeed. It's no. just impossible. There are teams historically where you could walk them four times in an inning and still have a chance to win the game. Against this team, no. And then Walker Bueller goes six innings, and he wasn't at his best. He struck out eight, walked two. He allowed three runs all earned. But it didn't matter because by the time he took the mound in the second inning, his team was at 11-1. to Yeah, I think you're pretty safe at that point. (laughs) So the question becomes for the Cardinals, because a lot of people were saying yesterday, well, maybe now this will provide Carlos Martinez that opportunity to become the guy that we thought he would become in 2013, 2014, and actually had three good years as a starter. But as you noted yesterday, he's just not a guy that you can count on. He's proven that time and time and time and time and time and time again. You know, my dad always has these little sayings, and one of his is when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. And I think we have enough of a sample size with Carlos Martinez that he's shown us who he is, and I believe him. And there's fool's gold in there sometimes. I think this season is a good example where at times you feel great about Carlos Martinez. You see him maximizing that potential. You wonder if when things go awry, if he's finally hit that maturity gear where he can take a deep breath and and maybe turn things around, right the ship. But last night was a classic Carlos Martinez outing. And I don't even mean the runs that he gave up, but just when things started to spiral, so did he. And you could see it in the body language and you just knew that there was absolutely no way, even though his team needed him, even though the Cardinals desperately needed Carlos to figure out a way to get some some pitches in there and eat up some innings for them so the bullpen didn't have to go out there, that you just knew that he wasn't going to find a way. Michelle, I was thinking yesterday that I would like to see Jake Woodford in the rotation, not to replace Jack Flaherty, but to be the number five guy or the, the guy that goes into the rotation with Jack Flaherty not there. He reinforced my feeling last night. He actually performed pretty well, only through 39 pitches, two and a third. He allowed one run, and that was the grand slam to Bellinger, but through 24 strikes of his 39 pitches. And I like him better than Johan Oviedo at the moment. So I'll, I'll, I'll put Woodford in the rotation. You okay with that? Yeah. And another thing, I, I, I kind of got Twitter mad. It's easy, to, I guess, to get Twitter mad uh, when you talk about Tyler Webb. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Of his last 13 appearances, he's allowed runs in 10 of them. Has a 16.2 ERA. He's allowed 18 runs in 10 innings in those 13 appearances. And for a guy who pitched well for his first three years with the Cardinals, he is really struggling. And the Cardinals have to find a way to fix him. And you can't fix a guy. Now, granted, he's a low leverage guy. He's a guy that you bring in when you're down 11 to 1. But he's still a guy that you don't want to get pounded, and they have to find a way to get him fixed. Yeah, he's he just doesn't have it right no. now. And you're right. Anytime he comes in, you you basically resign yourself to the fact that you know what the outcome's going to be. Right. He, he's the guy that pitches when you're you're down five. You, you don't pitch him in a game you're winning. 
You pitch him when you're down 5-1, 8-1, 11-1 at this stage. And obviously, things are different for him because you've got the three batter minimum, but he's got to pitch better than he has this year. And last year, his earned run average was 1.76. The year before that, it was 3.76 in 65 games. And he had two games that shot his ERA up. It would have been like three if it not, not for two outings. He's been a good performer for the Cardinals, and they just have to find a way to fix him. Meanwhile, they did get good performances out of Seth Elledge and Junior Fernandez, and you yeah, take nothing out of those, really. Some positives, by yeah, the, the way. The positives, but when you're down 14-3, to 3, I mean, you're, you're hopefully just throwing it down the middle and letting them hit, and the Dodgers had kind of quit by that point, too, and put in their bench. Mercy rule. Yeah. That's one of those games where after the first inning, you're like, how much? We have eight more to go. We have to watch eight more innings of this. Hey, Atlanta had to do it in a playoff game. Oh, yeah. remember that? Yes. <laughs> so on I, their home I field. I do. I do. That, on their home field too. That was a, a positive day for us here it in was, St. Louis. Though. That good. was a great day. Yeah. I loved that day. So the Cardinals back home tonight. They take on the Reds. Vladimir Gutierrez goes against our friend Adam Wainwright, and that's a 7:15 game at the ballpark. And then tomorrow night you'll get KK against Luis Castillo. Saturday you'll get uh, TBD against Tyler Molly. So Saturday it will not be. Uh, Jake Woodford, and then Sunday, and you might just do a bullpen game on Saturday. And then Sunday, John Gant against Wade Miley. How about Jake Woodford? All of a sudden, not thinking that he's going to be needed, has to get up, get ready, go into that situation, bases loaded. Yeah, right. <laughs> Show him what great. you can do. Yeah. Show him what you can do, Jake. Yeah. So with Flaherty down, with w- what we've seen against the Dodgers, and nobody expected, nobody in their right reasonable, reasonable mind expected the Cardinals to take two of three from the Dodgers. I think taking one of three actually is an accomplishment. But I don't feel good about this team without Jack Flaherty. I have long believed, Michelle, that a pitching staff falls in place behind their number one guy. And as much respect and admiration as I have for Adam Wainwright, I don't think that he's that guy where you say, okay, it's win day because Adam is on the mound. Because I I don't expect him at the age of 30 to give you seven innings on a regular basis. Well, the thing about Adam Wainwright, though, is that when his team needs him, he finds a way to get it done. Yeah. We've seen that time and time again. And right now, the Cardinals need Adam they Wainwright. They need him and, desperately. And I have no doubt that he is more than capable of answering the call there. We saw it last season when the Cardinals needed a big moment from Adam Wainwright. He stepped up every single time. And... I hate that now with Michaelis in question, with Jack Flaherty in question, that this was Carlos Martinez's big mm-hmm. moment to show that he is ready to accept the challenge and that when his team needs him, when when Jack, when the ace is gone, this is his opportunity to step up and shine. And yes, it's against the Dodgers, but to see him implode the way that he did and then see, see the way that he acted during it, you know, when he's walking out, pulling his jersey out, throwing his hands up during the inning. And I know he's frustrated when things aren't going your way, you get frustrated, but your team needs you. Your team needs you to put that frustration aside so that you don't have to burn the bullpen. And I, I, during that inning, watching that, yes, as the runs were piling up, you're getting more and more anxious and annoyed, but I'm thinking this is not great that the Cardinals cannot rely on Carlos Martinez right now. So not only do you have guys out for injuries, but knowing that Carlos is a question mark in so many ways, the Cardinals are in a tough spot. And not that this means anything to me, but it does to some people because I know I was sitting in this chair a few years ago when Carlos would have different colored hair every time he took them out. Some people are 
affected by the appearance of the pitcher. I'm just wondering, and you and I were wondering before the show, and Emily, you watch every game. Do you guys ever recall him having the eye piercing before last night? I, last night was the first time I noticed 65780 if you saw the eye piercing for Carlos Martinez before last night because I don't recall seeing it. Maybe I wasn't paying close enough attention. I don't know. That's the thing. Maybe I wasn't paying close enough attention, but I'm I'm not one of those people that correlates what he does from a self-expression standpoint to his performance. I, I don't either, but some people will. Some people, and, of course, and, will. And one thing that you wonder with him, and he's brought this on himself, is does he almost throw a no-hitter? Does he pitch really well and decide, oh, I'm going to go out and do this? And is the focus really there? What's he thinking about as he goes to the mound. Does he get too comfortable in his with his right. abilities? Does he think, oh, I'm pretty good now? I don't know. Last night, Colorado defeated uh, Vegas in overtime 3-2. Colorado leads that best of seven series. Two games to none. That's the series the, the Blues would have been playing against Vegas had they won four more games against Colorado, which they didn't do. Uh, and tonight, <laughs> you've got Boston and the Islanders tied at one apiece. You've got the Hurricanes and the Lightning, and Tampa Bay leads that series. Two games to nil. And last night in the NBA, the Sixers over the Wizards, 129 to 112. Philly wins that series 4-1. Hawks eliminated the Knicks, winning that series 4-1. Jazz over the Grizz, and Utah wins that series four games to one. And the Jazz will go on to play the winner of the Mavs Clippers series. Mavericks knocked off the Clippers 105-100 and leads that series 3-2. Luka Doncic is pretty good. And tonight you've got Suns and Lakers game number six and the Suns can eliminate the defending champions. You think they get it done? I don't think they do it on Staples Center floor. I think they, if they're going to win it, they're going to win it at home. LeBron He'll is, summon away? Yeah, he's not going to let this happen on his home floor. I don't we've seen LeBron have an answer for almost everything but I don't, I don't know. He just doesn't, he's still nursing an injury in a lot of ways. What's going to happen with AD? Phoenix just looks great. They Tonight might be dagger night. I know, but every time LeBron's in the situation, I think he's going to win. But as far as I'm concerned, he's won 10 championships. But that's a fair bet. If you're going to bet on anybody <laughs> to yeah. back themselves out of a corner, it's LeBron. Right, yeah. <laughs> Didn't you think in the three losses to Golden State, oh, he's going to find a way? Yes, yeah, it's just what we think of the guy. Yeah. He's awesome. Hold him in the highest esteem. We are off and running on Carriker and Smallman. Coming up, get your text into the Air Comfort Service text line 65780. A uh, little game of sick of it on 101 ESPN. We are right back to the Carriker and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. <laughs> Text 65780 for Sick of It here on 101 ESPN. And we'll get things started. Last night, Michelle, Winnipeg and Montreal playing in the Canadian Division Final Two. And late in the game, Montreal takes a 5-3 lead on a goal by Jake Evans. And he is hit up on the head by Mark Shifley of Winnipeg. Falls to the ice and has to be stretchered off. I'm completely sick of the fact that NHL players have just no respect for each other and their health. When you look at Kadri and the hit on Justin Falk, when you look at Tom Wilson and his antics over the years, when you look at a hit like Mark Shifley, I'm stunned. Yeah, right. Stunned and amazed and sick of the fact that NHL players just have no respect for one another. I'm with you. That hit was brutal. And, And you wonder, obviously, a guy is frustrated, right? His team is going to lose the game. But you're talking about somebody's 
livelihood and potentially their life. Mm-hmm. And there's just no respect, not only for the, the player and for what's happening on the ice, but no respect for that player's life. And it's unbelievable that, okay, I've got a legal shot to maim somebody, and then they take it. There's other ways, too, in hockey that you can take out your frustrations. Yeah. You can throw down. You can actually fight someone. You can slam someone into the boards. You could levy a hit on someone that doesn't involve their head. There are options right. there for you to be physical and to take out your frustration without potentially giving someone a concussion. Right. And, and by legal, I say according to the law, because if Shifley laid that hit on Evans as they were walking out of a, a bar, Shifley would be thrown in jail and he'd be arrested for assault. Mm -hmm. But obviously from a hockey standpoint, it's illegal, but legally from a a law standpoint. Yes. Bad. That's a good one. Brady, I think for mine this week, I'm going to kind of go to the genesis of this segment, which was Bradley Beal's wife getting sick of the fact that he kept putting up these unbelievable performances and Wizards losses. And so I'm going back to Tuesday night when Damian Lillard was absolutely electric. He had a 55-point performance. He was the first player in NBA history with at least 50 points, 10 assists, and 10 three-pointers in a game. That's regular season or playoffs. And he broke an NBA record with 12 threes. Oh, But don't worry because they lost the game. Portland lost that game. And I'm sick of NBA players having these very, very remarkable performances and their team not being able to rally around them and get them the win. Yeah, I'm I'm disturbed by that because you should be able when you have a performance like that to win the game. But that shows how difficult it is to build a team. And that's how magical it was when Golden State had their run, right? Because you have the Splash Brothers, you have Curry and Thompson doing their thing, and then Draymond Green doing his thing. You're able, and then obviously added Durant to that mix. It's hard to have four really good players like Golden State did, and that's why Brooklyn has such a great chance to win it this year. I don't see a team that has three players that can match up to Harden, Durant, Kyrie. No, they look amazing. Yeah, but. You can't let Denver win that game if you're Portland. You cannot. You cannot. You cannot waste that performance by Damian Lillard. Yeah, it's, uh, I, if I were him and I was or his wife, family member, sick of it. <laughs> sick of it. And I'd be on social media saying sick of it. All right. Your text 65780. Emily, what do you got? From the 636, I'm sick of all these walks that the Cardinals are allowing this season. They're on a record pace. It is pretty remarkable that they could walk so many. And as Adam Wainwright told us yesterday... It's a mental thing. It's, when you get to the major leagues, you have the ability to pitch, but you don't have the ability to pitch well. And that, that's what they run into is mentally, they just aren't capable at this stage of throwing a bunch of strikes. Last night was the sixth time with eight or more walks for the Cardinals this season. I'm sick of that. I'm sick of it. I, I put together last night and I'll, I'll open it up here. The Cardinals have not really done a lot of I, I won't say they, they haven't done a lot of work. Their young pitchers have not gotten much experience, and that's part of it. You have to learn how to pitch. You have to learn how to deal with adversity, and the Cardinal pitchers just haven't had that opportunity because they haven't had that opportunity at the minor league level. Would you rather have a situation where a player needs to overcome something physically or overcome something mentally? Mentally. Ad- adversity. Deal with it because at the major league level, that's what you're going to have to do. Now, Many times, dealing with something physically causes you to have to deal with some the, that adversity. 
I'm convinced that's what made Chris Carpenter part of what he is. Now, not that he wasn't a tough guy anyway, but all of those shoulder issues and other arm issues that he had to deal with before he got healthy here in 2004, I think that made him a better pitcher. Sometimes, though, and yes, dealing with a physical injury also takes a mental toll. There's no doubt about that. You need mental toughness to get through an injury. But sometimes with an injury, if you're Paul DeYoung and you have a, a fractured rib, you're, you know that you're going to be out X amount of weeks and then you can come back. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the mental thing is much more difficult to overcome and there's not a timeline on it. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And that's... And there's not a clear-cut right. answer, whereas when it comes to a physical injury, you, you usually know, you know the steps to take. Whereas if it's a mental thing and it's something something that keeps compounding, I mean, look at Carlos Martinez. This is something we've been talking about for the entirety of his career is, is trying to summon mental toughness and overcome adversity. Yeah. Sometimes that's more difficult to deal with than a physical problem. Yep. From the 636, sick of it. Any of the Rams' ownership having part in the leadership in the NFL, especially the commish? Come on, man. Yeah, we we didn't really expand on that the way we should have. No, Peter King in his Football Morning in America on Monday suggested that one of the candidates for commissioner when Roger Goodell retires in a couple of years will be Kevin Demoff because they want somebody young. And Kevin Kevin Demoff, he he fits the profile of the NFL. He knows how the cartel works. He knows how to lie his way to the top. Super weaselly, super weaselly. Charlie Marlowe at Channel 2 actually got punished one time for calling him a professional liar. (laughs) But that's accurate. Does Kevin Demoff get paid for his job? Yeah. And what did he do to take the Rams out of St. Louis? Lied. Professional liar. Yeah, I I don't see anything wrong with that. Charlie, we stand in solidarity with you. Yeah, we're on hashtag Team Charlie. Team Charlie. Um, I'll say this, though. He actually would be great for the job. Yes, he would. Because he's conniving. He is a scoundrel. He he just fits right. And he can actually... He's a, he's a manipulator. No moral compass. No. Now, the only thing is, will Kevin Demoff stand up to the owners ever? Because sometimes Roger Goodell has gone against Robert Kraft. He's gone against the grain sometimes. And a lot of people think it's an inflated ego and that he feels he's bigger than what the role is, which is essentially to do what the owners tell you. And I don't see Kevin Demoff ever doing that. I see him complying at all times with what the owners want. Yeah, he's a weasel. Totally. And he'll try to weasel his way through things, but he'll always do what he did in this job and be compliant. And when one of the owners says, okay, you do this, and it doesn't matter what the consequences are or the legality of it, you just do it. He'll do it. Now, about this really quickly again. Roger Goodell, I don't necessarily look at him as a tough guy, but he does have a certain presence about him. Um, maybe an air of confidence that le- that leads you to believe that he doesn't want to be messed with. Does that make sense? Yeah, the confidence of making $44 million a year. That'll do it. The mm-hmm. $44 million a year will do it to you. Kevin Demoff does not possess that, that same energy to me. No. I can't see him well, standing up at a press conference and being a great representative of the Shield. No, because the way he tries to justify things is so weaselly. And it's not with a great deal of statesmanship. At least Goodell can stand at a podium and lie to your face and you say, okay. But with Demoff, <laughs> you say, what a liar. What a what a jerk.
right? You know he's lying. Yeah. Whereas you, you, with Goodell, you, know lying, you but... at least question it a little. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> thanks, Emily. Thank you. And thanks for your text to the Air Comfort Service text line. Coming up, Greg Hemsinger has changed his, uh, his wardrobe game at MLB Network. We're going to find out what's going on with Greg. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Michelle Smallman, Randy Carricker with you. Danny Mac is out on assignment today, and we head to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. And our friend, native St. Louisan, a product of the Lindenwood University, and, of course, lead anchor for MLB Network, Greg Amzinger, kind enough to join us, as he does every Thursday morning at this time. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing well. You sound like you're in a really good mood, Randy. You sound like uh, you'd be doing a sports talk radio show in the city of Chicago this morning with two, <laughs> with two first-place baseball teams okay uh greg we didn't even talk about this beforehand but you led me here who are andrew chaffeen and ryan tapera and dan winkler and rex brothers and and i know who craig kimbrell is but who are these cubs relievers that have the 2.64 team era second best in the national league i will say this rex brothers i've been a big fan of back in his days the colorado rockies nasty left-handers kind of put it all together the rest of these guys are kind of journeymen, and if you go back and really look at any other bullpen other than the New York Yankees, whatever bullpen they roll out, which is usually top dollar, you find these reclamation projects. And I think, if you ask me, that is the advantage of having a former catcher as a manager. Now, I know front offices lay out matchups and when to use guys, but David Ross has a really good feel for this, and he's always he always thought this would be something that would be a strength of his is when to put guys based on what their stuff has looked like in the best positions possible. And and at the moment it's working out. Uh, My analogy for the Chicago Cubs, they're that fraternity on campus that always gets in trouble because they party a little too hard. (laughs) And then they went on, you know, probation and everyone on campus like, they might not ever come back, which is a shame because, man, when they are open for business, that's the best party on campus. And then out of nowhere, you find out they're not on probation anymore, and you're like, whoa, party on. This is their last dance. And when we talk about the Bulls and their last dance, this is the Cubs' last dance because the Ricketts family is not keeping the big four together. You, you won't see Craig Kimbrell next year in a Cubs uniform. He'll be a free agent. I'd be shocked if you see Javi Baez, Anthony Rizzo, definitely not Chris Bryant. Owners like this, they take this as an opportunity. The pandemic gave them an opportunity to say, whoa, we're really hurting for money. Even though they're printing money over there, Wrigley Field is sold out every day. The new marquee sports network's got great ratings. So this is the Cubs' last dance. It is. The bullpen's been such a pleasant surprise. And I don't think they're going anywhere. The rotation's been good, too. Well, Greg, the Cubs sustained biblical losses financially, just to make that clear, biblical losses. But do you think the front, the front office and ownership is frustrated that the team is winning? Because if the team continues to play like this, I mean, they just swept the Padres. How do you then blow the team up and get rid of guys like Chris Bryant if they're in first place in the division and they're surging? I don't think they're going to get rid of Chris Bryant. I, I, I don't think you can. It'd be an uproar. I mean, you're not in Milwaukee. You're not in these middle market teams because the Cubs are the Yankees of the Midwest. I, oh, well, I know a lot of people in New York are in St. Louis are going to hate me for saying that, but it is the truth. I mean, they drive a lot of revenue in that city. Uh, I've had conversations with Kenny Williams, who's the president of baseball operations for the Chicago White Sox. And he's like, the White Sox, if you look at market share, they are a mid market 
baseball team. People think of the White Sox with the same kind of cash flow as the Chicago Cubs. It is not even close. The Cubs are the Yankees of the state of Illinois, and the White Sox are the Mets. It's just the way it works. And the Cubs drive it. The Ricketts are going to have to hold on to Bryant, which is something they prefer not to do. He's playing like an MVP candidate. You can flip him this year and get plenty of young talent to restock that farm system, which was depleted when they made the run. So uh, the, to me, it's not a a uh, sticky situation because I thought what the Giants had a couple of years ago was when Bruce Bochy's final year's manager came to fruition and they wanted to hold on to Mad Bum for one more run. That made no sense to me because even if they even if they made it to the playoffs, they weren't good enough to win the World Series. The Chicago Cubs, if all things click, if Baez keeps making contact, if guys like Cole Stewart, a former first round pick by the Twins, who appeared the other day and looked like a former first round mm-hmm. pick in the rotation for the Cubs, if those things keep working out, they've got enough like pedigree in their lineup to actually make a run deep into the postseason. So this isn't like the Giants a couple of years ago where I thought they needed to trade everyone, including Madison Bumgarner, where his stock was high. I think if the Cubs keep playing well, they've won 9 of 10. This is a club that could give the Dodgers and the Padres, as we just saw this week, uh, a run for their money in October. Greg, six years ago, the Cardinals lost their ace early in the season. Adam Wainwright went down with that Achilles, and he was done for the year. Yet, Lackey and Lynn and Waka and Martinez and Garcia were the nucleus of a rotation that allowed the Cardinals to win 100 games. Now they don't have Flaherty here. Is there any way the Cardinals, logically speaking, can overcome the loss of Jack Flaherty for the next couple of months? I think they can I, I honestly think they can. I mean, look, he's got like top three run support in baseball. I mean, he might be number one. At one point, it was 9.9 runs per game. It was like some ridiculous stat. Uh, Jack Flaherty's popularity amongst his teammates is at an all-time high, apparently. They all love him. He needs to have a conversation with Jacob DeGrom. I don't know what he does for his teammates the day before, <laughs> but he needs to do something to help Jacob DeGrom. He gets no run support. Uh, the Cardinals score a lot of runs when he pitches. He has been very good. Last couple, not so great. But look, man, they're... The Cardinals always figure out a way to have these surprises in the rotation. Is there a bigger surprise than John Gant and his 1.63 ERA? I, I, I don't think there is. I don't think there's a bigger surprise in any rotation how consistent this former reliever has been. He might walk a bunch of people. His pitch count might be soaring through five innings. But he's giving you the modern quality start. And to me, that is putting your team in a position to win through five innings. That's a quality start now. It's not six innings. You rarely see that anymore. John Gant has been important. Um, Yadier Molina putting the fingers down. Hate to like throw anything on Kisner for what happened last night. And Carlos Martinez has had a terrific start this year with Kisner behind the plate. But Yadi needs to navigate now. He needs the, the rotation needs to lean on the highest baseball IQ in the sport to get through this rough stretch. Yes, you don't want to lose Flaherty. He might be one of the most talented pitchers in the game in terms of raw stuff. But I think the Cardinals can still weather this storm. The the Chicago Cubs are not a slam dunk. They're playing great baseball right now. But I still look at that rotation and I think it's thin. I I still think it's thin. Does not have enough swing and miss in that rotation to to weather the next 100 games. We still have over 100 games left. So I still think the Cardinals' depth 
including their farm system, will help them win this division. Greg, speaking of injuries and, and Jack Flaherty, it seems like every team in baseball is dealing with an avalanche of injuries. We're seeing so many star players be out because of injuries, and I don't know if it's because of the truncated season last year, the way that that player's train has been disrupted, but in your opinion, why do you think we're seeing so many injuries now in baseball? You know, Chris Young, who we just hired of journeyman outfielder, actually asked me this question. Like, hey, what you got on that, Greg, on the air? Like, what do you think? And I have an opinion on everything. Not that I know anything, (laughs) but I have an opinion on everything. And and my opinion is because of the truncated season, I think front offices and training staffs are extremely sensitive. That's part of the game plan of of trying to get these creatures of habit back into the routine. Uh, It was all thrown out of whack. And, and Chris Young said something that was just fascinating to me. You know, baseball legs are hard to acquire. And I always was like, come on, man, baseball legs. I watch football players get slammed around, basketball players going up and down the court, diving on hardwood floor. Tell me about baseball legs. And he goes, there's something hard to describe, but no matter how much working out you do, no matter what kind of shape you show up in in spring training, go stand in cleats on grass for 40 minutes. And then be ready to burst like a track star. He's like, that pause, that standing still, standing in cleats on grass is its own workout. And and baseball legs are hard to acquire. They're hard to generate. And baseball players don't have them right now. At least front offices don't believe they have them. And they're being extra sensitive to any tweak. If it's a tweak, an injury that we normally see guys play through. Matter of fact, we don't see it. We don't hear about it, that a guy's not 100%. They're putting him on the IL. They're putting anyone on the IL that is important to their postseason stretch run. So come August and September, they want all these tweaks to not be major injuries. They don't want them to you know, you know, transform into something serious. So they're putting these guys on the IL. They're extra sensitive to it. They want their horses ready for the stretch run. And with that extra wild, with the, with the wild card game being what it is, everyone thinks they got a shot. So that's why I think it's the competitive balance, knowing that these guys don't have their baseball legs because of the truncated season. And they're just being sensitive to anything that can hold their best players up come August 1st. Greg, I'm going to leave the Dodgers out of this because they do both of the things that I'm going to ask you about. But if I give you the choice of a front office that's really smart, like the Giants or the Rays, or has a ton of money, like the Yankees or the Mets, what are you taking? Yankees, Mets. I want money, man. Give me the cash money. That see, at the end of the day, yeah, I this is this is just my take on it. Winning isn't everything. It's not everything. I bring up the Forbes article right after the World Series where all 30 clubs' value was assessed, and there were only three teams, only three organizations that went down in value. One of them was the team that played in the World Series, the Tampa Bay Rays. If you build it, that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to come. It is still a form of entertainment. Winning baseball games isn't everything. When you go into the Rays Pro Shop, what jersey are you going to buy? Do you think anyone's still going to be around in two years? It's hard to believe that. They don't have a consistent product on the field. I, as a, as a fan of the game, became a fan of players. I didn't become a fan of just a jersey. Yes, my favorite players wore a Cardinal jersey, but I wanted to grow up and play defense like Ozzy Smith, even though I was flat-footed and I had no athleticism at all. <laughs> so I love players. And if I'm a fan of, in New York, I love the fact that Aaron Judge – 
is a Yankee or Francisco Lindor is going to be around for 10 plus years. And more than likely, you know, Mr. Cohen's going to lock up Pete Alonso for a long time. This is what those big markets do. They pay their players. They keep them around. That's part of the form of entertainment. And, uh, I, I, I would take that in a heartbeat. Yeah, it's great that, you know, the Oakland A's and the Tampa Bay Rays, they don't spend a lot of money per win. And, oh, isn't that wonderful? But time out, man. They're playing in front of 15,000 fans on a given night. It's not a, it's not a marquee event to go to one of their games. So if you ask me, while I give them credit for winning baseball with a low budget, give me the big money. To me as a baseball fan, that is an awesome product to go enjoy and, and, and really support. All right, uh, last thing I have to pay off the tease before we uh, introduced you. Uh, the sport coat game has been exceptional this week. And normally <laughs> and you, you're, you can pick out a suit and you can wear a suit. But I've really liked the sport coat and slacks game. Thank you, Randy. You know, when you get, when you get up there in years, I'm 42 now, uh, you can't just rock sideburns and think you're going to get away with it. You got to actually mix it up a bit. And I never was a guy that wanted to incorporate tennis shoes. I hate tennis shoes with suits. With that whole look that's been uh, the rave right now, the rage in baseball and, and all in sports media. I hate that look. But yesterday I had to tape a show. I was doing a show after the show. Uh, it's a baseball card show on MLB.TV called Carded. It's actually really good. I interviewed former Cardinal Dimitri Young last night. Oh, nice. um, I, I had to wear casual clothing. And if you know me, I'm really lazy, so I wore like black slacks and tennis shoes because I had to change into another casual outfit after I did MLB tonight. And I show up to the studio in a suit and tie or in a blazer and tie, and because I, I just don't understand people that bring two out, uh, full outfits, I don't understand that. That's a lot of decision making. It's a lot of clothes carrying to the car. I'm just immensely lazy. So if you see me with a blazer on and slacks, it's because I'm taping a show after the show. It's not because I have any fashion sense. It's because I'm really lazy. Good knowledge to have. <laughs> but it looks great. It looks magnificent on you. Uh, thank you, Randy. I do try. And I know you're watching. So when you send me the text message about the blazer, it always brings a smile to my face. <laughs> Love it. Hey, thanks so much for the time. We appreciate it. Have a great day. And uh, we'll be watching tonight. All right. You guys are the best. Take care. See you, Greg. Greg Amsinger, MLB Network on 101 ESPN. He had a really nice red and white uh, striped sport coat on Memorial Day. Very festive. It was great. Remember when Greg told us he doesn't like to wear the half zips? He yep. doesn't like to go full casual. No, he's he can't be full casual. He's just incapable. <laughs> Get your text into the Air Comfort Service text line 65780. Michelle and Emily and I have Take It or Leave It coming your way on 101 ESPN. We are right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. <laughs> Our Air Comfort Service text line number is 65780 for Take It or Leave It. Michelle Smallman stayed up for the entire game last night. I think I went to bed after Carlson's home run. Take it or leave it, Michelle. If you weren't doing this job, you would have given up after the first inning last night. I'm going to leave it because I would have left in the middle of the first inning. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Once it got to maybe Six okay. runs in the first. I wouldn't have stayed around for all 11. I can promise you that. Yeah, I, I stuck around, and I probably would have stuck around for the 11, but then I would have checked out big time. It, it was one of those things where I said to myself, why am I doing this to myself? 
This is miserable. I am intrigued by the theater of Carlos Meltdowns, I got to admit. See, I'm not. Okay. Because we know how that movie ends. Normally when you go to the theater, you're in for a surprise, maybe some delight as the show goes on. The ending might be unpredictable. You don't go to the show knowing how it's going to end. Untucking the jersey and stuff, that was new. But also unsurprising. Part Part of the same ending. Yeah. It's just, it's kind of like a car accident. You can't, you can't, you can't turn away. away. Oh, I can turn away. I, I wish I could <laughs> turn the channel and put on something else. Jeez. Um, Randy, I don't know if you saw this, but earlier in the week, advocates for minor leaguers, they exposed what the Oakland A's are feeding their minor leaguers. And do you remember when Firefest went down and people spent thousands of dollars to go to this exclusive music festival in the Bahamas? And then they show up and it's FEMA tents and they're getting fed old slices of white bread. Mm -hmm. Well, essentially, that's what these players in the Oakland A's organization were getting. There was all these pictures that got spread out over the internet, and it's a a piece of white bread, a little bit of lettuce, a slice of cheese. It it looked awful. And now the A's are saying that they fired the third-party vendor that was feeding the players, and they're trying to rectify this but take it or leave it they wouldn't have done anything if it wasn't exposed on social media and they didn't take so much heat for it totally take it 100 percent. baseball teams what they do to minor league players is absolutely criminal it's unbelievable and then they lobbied congress so that they didn't have to pay them living wages minor league players don't make a, a normal living wage they actually work based on the hours they work for wages below the poverty poverty line it's it's criminal but it is they would not, and no team would do anything until they were outed. Until they're publicly shamed. Yep, exactly. And this, it's just so awful to see the conditions that a lot of these guys have to play in, knowing that the organization is printing so much money and that this has likely been brought to the attention of a lot of people, but it takes someone calling them out on social media for a change to happen. Yeah, it's, it's just awful the way that the major leagues treat their employees well and when you think about it these guys are trying to perform at the highest level so that they can get promoted to the majors a lot of that comes with putting the right fuel in your body getting the right supplements all of these things that they need cost money and if you're not getting paid enough you're hoping at least the organization will provide you with the fuel you need to do your job and they're not even doing that and if you are a franchise wouldn't you want your players to perform at the highest level and give you the best that they could possibly give so that you, they can help you at the major league level? You would think so. I, I don't know. that. Why, why is it that major leaguers have a chef and they aren't getting white cheese sandwiches with lettuce and tomato? It's unbelievable to me. That's right. If you're pouring into them, your investment will hopefully pay you dividends mm-hmm. when they come up to the majors Yeah, and but, win you games, yeah, they, make they, you money. They are, they are not treated Minor leaguers are, are not treated well by the major leagues at all. And by the way, shame on major league players for not wanting to help the minor leaguers just with something as simple as that. All right, Emily, what do you got for us? From the 314, take it or leave it. Uncle Randy should have to spin the wheel for telling us never to take the over against the Dodgers. Did I say never take the over against the for the Cardinals for the for for your team don't take the over against the Dodgers because the Dodgers are going to pitch well against you yeah for your team yeah right right that's what the guy said during yeah. Ask Uncle Randy yeah you you always take 
I'll, every game, 162 games, if the Dodgers are playing, you take the game over because their lineup is ridiculous. Even if the over-under is 11, okay, you're figuring, okay, a 7-5, seven, 7-4 seven, seven, game, 7-4, 6-5. If you take the over because the Dodgers, you figure, are going to score so many runs. From the 618, take it or leave it, the Cardinals are in first place for good by the end of June. I gotta leave that. The Jack Flaherty situation changes my mind on that. Yeah, definitely. I'm not gonna take that. I would love to take it, but I don't have the confidence to take it. Yeah. I'm not bold enough to take it. Take it or leave it. Jack Flaherty starts another game before the All Star break. Leave it. I'm gonna leave it too. From the 314, take it or leave it, the Cardinals' only chance to win the division is acquiring Max Scherzer. Um. I'm going to leave it because I think there might be another option externally for them. I also think so much hinges on the Cubs. Is this fool's gold? Is this success we're seeing out of them sustainable? I don't know. And there are other issues that even if you have Max Scherzer that are infecting the Cardinals right now, the fact that you only have three reasonably reliable relief pitchers is troublesome. Yes, it is. Because Max Scherzer can give you six good innings and things can blow up for you. From the 636, take it or leave it, Jack Flaherty pitches again in 2021. I will take that. I'm going to take that. I think he'll be back then. Now, what I'm hoping is that he's back and back for good and not he's back and that oblique somehow gets re-aggravated because we've seen that happen before. I think he misses six and he's back for the final six. There are about, what, 12 weeks left in the season. So I'm, I'm thinking... June, first half of July, All-Star break. And then after the All-Star break, second half of July, actually more than that, August and September. So I, I think, bad math there, 12, he'll be back for 12. <laughs> so he's he's out for six more, back for 12. Okay. From the 618, take it or leave it, Carlos Martinez will be another former Cardinal who finds success with another team. Oh, totally take it. Really? I'm going to leave that. Yeah, he'll he'll succeed somewhere. He'll go somewhere and... He'll go, like, to Tampa or San Francisco, and they'll fix him. I'm going to leave that. Okay. I I just wonder if he moves on from the Cardinals, what his – how he'll take that. What will his attitude be about that? Will it be, I'm going to want to prove them wrong, I'm going to have a chip on my shoulder, and I'm going to fine-tune my performance? Or will it be, well, this is where I am now, and – Let's just go with it. And the question that I would have about him is even if he says that when he's out there in the, on the market and when he signs and in spring training, is he capable of sustaining a feeling like that over the course of a season? Can, can he be motivated and say, okay, I'm going to show them in the middle of June? Heading into the 2020 season, when we saw him at the winter warm-up, he seemed very different. He seemed mature. He seemed to be approaching this from a business standpoint. And he talked about how much he wanted to be in the rotation. And he was taking this so seriously. And that was two seasons ago. And there's been instances in between then. Yeah. He does not handle adversity well. That's the biggest thing with him. From the 502, take it or leave it, the Cardinals will recover from last night and win three of four against the Reds. Yeah, I'll take that. Reds are not great. I'll take it, too. So there we go. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. And thank you very much for your text to the Air Comfort Service text line 65780. It was a rugged night for the Cardinals in L.A. And then they get to fly home and take on the Reds here today. What happened last night? We'll tell you next on 101 ESPN. 
We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. in St. Louis. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler, Michelle Smallman, Randy Carricker. And coming up, Babe Ruth's 1914 pre-rookie card sold for $6 million a few days ago. If you had to, had to spend, you've got to spend $6 million on a piece of sports memorabilia, what would you buy? Now, we're giving you $6 million, but you have to spend it on sports memorabilia. We want to know what you would buy, and you can send in your text, 65780, or use the Rhino Shield mic drop feature on the 101 ESPN app, and tell us what you would spend your $6 million on. And the thing is, You've got the $6 million, and you can only spend it on something like that, a piece of sports memorabilia. Michelle, the Cardinals lost 14-3 last night, and it was not great. I'm aware. I watched. It was painful. I don't know why I did that to myself. Well, the game started at 8-10, which was fortunate. It didn't start at 9-10. And the Cardinals did get a home run, took the lead on a Paul Goldschmidt blast in the first inning. It was good to see him go deep. But then Carlos Martinez went just two-thirds of an inning. He allowed 10 earned runs. He walked four. He allowed six hits. He struck out one. His earned run average ballooned to 5.83. Manager Mike Schilt, what would you think? Yeah, I mean, Carlos just wasn't... A lot of close misses, you know, um, jump out one nothing the lead, Goldie Homer. So we're off to a good start. You know, Betts skews one off the end, hits the foul chalk. And, you know, Rest just wasn't able to command his pitches like he's like he's used to. You know, balls found some holes, obviously. Some balls hit hard and um, just wasn't able to get in any kind of rhythm, wasn't able to stop the damage. Um, you know, more... You know, more more balls and strikes, um, a lot of some close misses. Um, just wasn't his night. No, he, he ruined the bullpen. Woodford goes two and a third. Webb goes in inning, allows three runs. Elledge a couple of innings. Fernandez a couple of innings. And Mike Schilt is very good about not being frustrated by the inconsistency of his right-hander. I'm frustrated by the inconsistency of his right-hander. Or maybe he just does a great job of masking that frustration. Mm -hmm. Mike Schilt is never going to call out one of his players. He's usually an even-keel guy until he's not. (laughs) We've seen that fiery side of him. But Gosh, I can't imagine that he's feeling great waking up this morning, knowing that Jack Flaherty's out. You're still dealing with Miles Michaelis being out, and Carlos was someone that you really needed to lean on to help you during this time while Jack Flaherty's not there. And then he goes out and has that type of a performance last night. I'm sure Mike Schultz doesn't feel great this morning. And that, to me, Michelle, is the biggest thing and the most salient point here. You might need Carlos Martinez to be consistent for six weeks, four to six weeks. And then he can go back to being Carlos. He he can be inconsistent. He can be a guy that folds under pressure. He can be a guy that just doesn't handle adversity well. But not when Jack Flaherty is out. This is an opportunity to step up and help save your team. And to walk four and close misses. Hey, balls or strikes, right? You you can't. uh, I didn't see Walker Bueller. He, He walked two. He didn't walk four in the first inning. And it was the same umpire. I don't believe they were giving the Dodgers any preferential treatment there. Fact of the matter is, Carlos did walk four. As a matter of fact, uh, thirty. He, at least he preserved himself. He threw 39 pitches to allow those 10 runs. <laughs> and uh, he only threw 19 strikes. 
30, 19 strikes and 20 balls. You just can't pitch that way and expect to succeed at the major league level. But last night was his moment. Last night was the moment right in the wake of the Jack Flaherty injury and the announcement against a team like the Dodgers Mm -hmm. for Carlos Martinez to really assert himself, for him to have this moment where he says to his teammates, I'm going to pick us up. This is going to be tough for us to get through without our ace, but don't worry, guys. I'm here, and I'm going to provide us what we need from this start and and not only in the wake of the Jack Flaherty injury but because he needs to preserve the bullpen you do yep. not want to have to burn the bullpen in a game like that last night knowing that today you have to immediately turn around fly to Cincinnati have have that sort of flight and then start another series and he couldn't do it he he imploded in very dramatic fashion and it just doesn't leave a, a positive taste in a lot of people's mouths. And I, I certainly don't feel confident that he can immediately turn this around moving forward. Do you? I'm not confident at all. No. No. Now, one positive out of this, Paul Goldschmidt did hit that first inning home run. And Michelle, this is his MO, kind of. In June for his career, Goldie has been a 310 hitter with a 414 on base and a 572 slug. He's got a 986 career OPS in June. And then in July, we talk about warm weather hitters. His career batting average is still good, uh, 310 for both months. His on base for July is 404. His slug for July is 544 with a 948. So those are generally his two best months, June and July, and hopefully. He's off to that typical June start. Paul Goldschmidt can make a huge difference for this team. Absolutely. When he homered to put the Cardinals ahead 1-0, weren't you feeling so good about the game? Yeah, if that, I was. If that was the way yeah. that... Carlos pitching with the lead, okay. There you go, perfect. No, that's not how it turned out. And speaking of getting hot, we need to touch quickly on Cody Bellinger, who missed yep. most of the first two months. He had a hairline fracture in his right leg. He... Led the charge last night, a franchise record six RBI in the first inning. It was his first home run of the season. He came into that game one for 12 with eight strikeouts. So I I guess maybe Carlos was just helping Cody Bellinger get right. Yeah, maybe. Maybe he was just helping out a buddy. (laughs) Helping out a former player. So another one of their former MVPs playing like an MVP. Yeah, the Dodgers are they're ascending and when Cody Bellinger is clicking that team watch out they're not no one's going to beat them and Gavin Lux is coming into his own exactly they've just got so many good things happening they really do that's today's fresh take on 101 ESPN coming up Babe Ruth's pre-rookie card sold for six million dollars so we're putting six million dollars in your hands and saying you have to spend this on sports memorabilia a piece of sports memorabilia what are you spending it on Mike drops texts next on 101 ESPN we're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Character and Smallman on 101 ESPN. We want your text. We want your mic drops. And we want to know... What piece of sports memorabilia you would spend $6 million on? The reason that we ask this question, and I think it's a a fair and reasonable question, Michelle, is because Babe Ruth's 1914 pre-rookie card sold for $6 million. There's a lot of sports memorabilia out there. You can buy cards, you can buy balls, bats, all kinds of different things. And so we were thinking, what would you buy if you had $6 million? And we, my original question was, okay, you have $100 million, what would you buy? 
but your idea is better. Okay, you have to spend $6 million on a piece of sports memorabilia like was spent on this card. For Michelle Smallman, what would that $6 million go towards? Well, I would want it to be something related to St. Louis sports, obviously, Mm -hmm. and be related to an iconic moment in St. Louis sports that I have a connection to. And we have some options. You could go grade a show on turf. You could go something from the 2019 Blues run. But how sweet would it be to have in your house framed the shredded jersey off of the body of David Freeze after game six? That would be pretty awesome. That's a total one of a kind. And... I think it would cost more than $6 million. It's There's no price really for it. It's in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine it would cost more than that. Um, but that would, to me, if I could have one thing in my house, that's what it would be because it, it has dirt on it. It's shredded. It's in shards. You remember Nick Punto, the shredder. And mm-hmm. there is no singular moment for me that is better than that one in my lifetime as a St. Louis sports fan. Pretty darn good. I am actually going to get a case for this golf club. I'm going to go with the Tiger Woods Scotty Cameron putter that he's used for each of his major wins. Wow. He's had one from 1997 all the way through 2019 and the Masters. And it's pretty amazing. And they've sold replicas for $60,000, $90,000. So I'm going to go with the original and I'm going to spend my $6 million on that. It's pretty good. Would you like to hear some options from the text line? I want to hear. From the 816, I would buy Ted Williams' frozen head. Oh, that would be <laughs> really good. And that would be a bargain for a head. That would be, be pretty cool. <laughs> okay, it would be cool. Uh, and how do you know that's a bargain for a head? What is the going rate for a frozen head these days? Probably $6 million. Okay. And somebody comes, like, like if you have it downstairs and it's like visible, and somebody comes down and says, what are you doing here? You just say, I'm just chilling. Ice in his veins. <laughs> uh, from the 618, I would buy Michael Phelps Olympic gold medals. Oh, that would be pretty cool. Yeah. Those are unique and one of a kind. Yes, patriotic. From the 573, can I buy future memorabilia? If so, I'm buying the catcher gear that Yachty inevitably plays his final game in. That would be pretty good. By the way, Yachty... Made his Major League debut 17 years ago today. Wow. He's been doing this in, at the Major League level for 17 years now. Tip of the cap. Yeah, amazing. Happy anniversary, Yachty. From the 636, they wouldn't let me have it, but it would be one of the retired Stanley Cups. Well, you get it. If you're, We're giving you $6 million, and you get it. So that'd be pretty good. One of the, heck, the Blues Stanley Cup. That'd be fun. That would be fun. From the 314, I would spend the $6 million on the Houston Astros trash can. That would be something that nobody else has. I would want maybe the buzzer. Yeah, the Jose Altuve buzzer that was under his jersey. Because no one's ever really seen that. We've all just watched the video and there's been speculation. But if somehow you could find the actual device, that would be pretty cool. (laughs) Um, Let's see. From the 314, I would buy Petrangelo's jersey from Game 7. Yeah, that'd be a great thing to have. I wonder where that is right now. That's a great question. I wonder if that's at the Hockey Hall of Fame. Or did he hang out to it? He very well could have. If you're a player, mm-hmm. can you say no to the Hockey Hall of Fame? If they want that jersey, can you say, no, nah, you know what, I'm going to keep this, give it to my kids? I think you can say no to the Hockey Hall of Fame. What would you do? Would you keep it or would you put it in the hall? I would probably put it up for display by the hall. I would say you can borrow this. You can't have it, but you can borrow this. And then if I ever need it so that I can give it to my kids, I want it, but you can have it for now. Yeah. 
that's a that's a good route. I also think it would be so special for your kids to go to the Hall of Fame and see and your see jersey it. there hanging yeah, in the Hall cool. of Fame. They would feel very proud. From the 314, I would spend the $6 million on Evander Holyfield's ear. Oh, I wonder where that is right now. You know, you can't buy body parts on eBay. They quit that when I, I think it was Gene Nelson or Jeff Nelson, a pitcher, uh, had elbow surgery and they took chips out and he put the chips on eBay and mm-hmm. eBay said, no, you can't do that. So they don't <laughs> allow sales. But what would you do with Evander Holyfield's ear? Do you like just put it in a jar? Do you, do you get casing for it? Yeah, you could do something. You could make it uh, a piece of art, maybe dip it in gold and put it in a glass case. And then it's a work of art. That is what is that? That's Evander Holyfield's ear that Mike Tyson bit off. Yeah, I dipped it in gold. Great idea. I dipped it in gold. Well, remember, I always said if I could have one thing, it would be Chris Carpenter's rib that was removed. Exactly. He's my favorite Cardinal of all time. We spoke to him on the show, and the rib is long gone. It it exploded during a move, and it did not smell good. So they yeah. he and his family got rid that of it. pretty amazing, though, but that he had it for a while. But a famous artist, Damien Hurst, he had a series where he did things like this. Like, there's a famous... Damien Hurst piece at the Hotel Fiana in Miami that is the reconstruction, I think, of a woolly mammoth skeleton, and I believe it's dipped in gold. So you could do a take on a Damien Hurst with Evander Holyfield's ear or Chris Carpenter's rib if it still existed. That would be worth $6 million because you aren't getting that anywhere else. You can't just say, okay, I I want a piece of Evander Holyfield's ear made. You could get a reasonable facsimile of a Tiger Woods putter or a yeah. Petro jersey. Where do you get a reasonable facsimile of Evander Holyfield's ear? You can't get one. No. Remember the moth that flew into Matt Holiday's ear? That would be something yeah, that if you had, you, you could frame it, and that would be a piece of art. Yeah, the moth. The moth. <laughs> okay, I would go back in time from the 573 and spend the $6 million on the plane ride home the night the Blues won the cup. That would be worth it. That would, that would be worth more than $6 million. Yeah, it sure would. The stories from that plane ride. Mm. Um, let's see. From the 314, I would want Kurt Warner's glove from the Rams Super Bowl. That'd be fun. That'd be a good thing to have. You followed that team so closely. You're very tied into the mm-hmm. greatest show on turf. If you could have one piece of memorabilia from that that entire season, what would it be? Oh, good question. I'd probably go with uh, maybe the the ball that Isaac scored the first touchdown against Minnesota with. That was my favorite play. Have him autograph it. Yeah. I wonder who has that ball because he just spun it and they did the bob and weave. I wonder if he kept the football. We'll have to ask him. Yeah, we will. Next time we speak to him. From the 314, I want the Patriots tapes. Oh, that would be fun to have. It's a shame they're destroyed. You think they had any backups? There has to be a hard drive somewhere. I don't know. Every, that, that everybody a, knows you back up your files. But that was a, a that was pre uh computer that, that was tape. That was real tape. VHS tape? Yeah, unfortunately. Hey, we've got a mic drop from ironically, Mike on 101 ESPN. Mike, what would we, what would you spend a 6 million dollars on if you had if we gave you the 6 million dollars you got it on sports, sports memorabilia? I would buy with my $6 million, the first opening day game-worn jersey from Jackie Robinson. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah, I'll bet you that's worth it. Olympics, the Ohio River. Hmm. I don't know if he threw it in the Ohio. I, I didn't know. That's a good story if he did throw it in the Ohio River. He did. 
I don't know. I don't know. We need to look that up. Yeah. But interesting to have. I wonder if you could get one of them or if you could buy the whole lot. Probably one. I would imagine if you got all of them, it would be more than $6 million, right? Well, maybe you get a multi-metal discount. Maybe you get a deal? Yeah. (laughs) Maybe they package it up. From the 314, I would move the St. Louis Cardinals sign from Bush Stadium into my backyard. That would be very cool. That would be fun. Um. And we're getting one from the 636. I would spend $6 million on Stan Kroenke's toupee. I don't know if I'd want to have that. Is that worth $6 million? No, and then he'd, he'd likely get the money. He'd just right? get, yeah, he, he would. And he would just buy another toupee. Uh, from the 618, by the way, why does Randy know the selling policy of body parts on eBay? Kind of creepy. <laughs> and it's because a pitcher actually tried to sell his elbow chips. Oh, because that was the start. He had them... Up there for bid. Uh, let's see. I'll, I'll find out which Nelson it was. I'm very curious how high the bid got before eBay pulled it. I, yeah, that's I a would good Im- question. I would imagine that it gained some traction in the media, and that's how eBay found out about it, right? So th- yeah, this was back in 2002, and uh, Luis Gonzalez had sold game-used gum. Tim Hudson sold goatee clippings. And then Jeff oh. Nelson sold bo- was, was wanting to sell bone chips from his elbow. He was with Seattle at the time, and it was a short-lived auction on eBay and eventually removed because they cited their policy against the peddling of body parts. So that's the only reason I know it is because it was involved with sports. Did you say goatee clippings? Yeah. Who would want to buy that? I don't know. But I think somebody one time uh, tried to sell or did sell a jar of air that had been breathed by Angelina Jolie. So she, somebody was in the same that was breathed by Angelina Jolie. By the way, Michelle, you asked uh, the opening bid for Jeff Nelson's uh, elbow chips. The opening bid was two fifty, and the price climbed until the bidding uh, ended or, or was stopped shortly after four o'clock. Hundred nine bids had been made, and it was at twenty three thousand six hundred dollars for wow. his elbow chips. And so he didn't complete the sale. No, they shut it down. I wonder if that person, if he found them and reached out to them and they were able to make the transaction. be interesting. So. $23,000. For somebody else's elbow chips. You must be a... They've got a fight on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Welcome back to Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. It's time for the fight. Yesterday, we had someone join the Fight Hall of Fame. Kyle or Kevin, whichever way you want to call him. But his name was Kyle. And Kyle normally would have a chance to continue the streak and see how far he could go. But he wanted to tap out. He said, I made it to the Hall of Fame. That's good enough for me. Too stressful going against Randy. So we have a new fighter to go up against Megamind today. And it's Nick. Nick is with us this morning. How you doing, Nick? I'm doing good. How are you? We're, I'm doing great. You ready to take on Randy in the fight? Yep. Hopefully we can make it uh, two in a row. 
That's right. I love the confidence. Good luck. Question number one. Yesterday, Mike Krzyzewski announced that he would be retiring after the 2021-22 season. He is the all-time winningest coach in college basketball history at any level, men or women's. Coach K achieved this feat on February 16th, 2019, beating which ACC team? Was it Clemson, NC State, or Georgia Tech? Uh, let's go NC State. Danny Ainge stepped down as the Celtics president of basketball operations yesterday. Ainge had a successful 14-season basketball career, but also played in Major League Baseball. Which team did he play parts of three seasons with while in college? The Seattle Mariners, Boston Red Sox, or Toronto Blue Jays? Um, Let's go Seattle. The 76ers defeated the Wizards 129-112 last night. They're going to advance to the conference semifinals. Who is the 76ers' all-time points leader? Is it Hal Greer, Allen Iverson, or Julius Irving? Um, Let's go with Iverson. I don't even know. (laughs) (laughs) And who led the Cardinals in triples in 2019? Was it Harrison Bader, Tommy Edmond, or Colton Wong? Uh, Bader. All right, checking our score. Randy's on his way in. When you said, uh, Bader, I didn't feel the confidence. I felt the confidence, Nick, waning as the <laughs> questions continued to come. Yeah, no, I didn't feel very confident about really any of those, but we'll see how it goes. <laughs> All right, Randy, as you're getting settled, please say what's up to Nick. Nick, good morning. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. Randy, question yes. number one. Mike Krzyzewski announced that he would be retiring after the 2021-22 season. Mm -hmm. He is the all-time winningest coach in college basketball history at any level, men or women's. Coach K achieved this feat on February 16th, 2019, beating which ACC team? Um, Okay, well, let's do the ACC. Uh, He didn't do it against Carolina. I know that. Um... Hmm. NC State, Maryland. I'll do, uh, I'll go Clemson. I'll go Clemson Tigers. Danny Ainge stepped down as the Celtics president of basketball operations yesterday. Mm-hmm. Ainge had a successful 14-season basketball career, but also played in Major League Baseball. Which team did he play parts of three seasons with while in college? He was with the Toronto Blue Jays. The 76ers defeated the Wizards 129-112 last night. They're going to advance to the conference semifinals. Who is the 76ers' all-time points leader? I don't think that Wilt Chamberlain played with them. I'm going to say I'm going to go with Iverson. And who led the Cardinals in triples in 2019? 2019? Um, I'll Edmund Bader, Bader Edmund. I'll go Edmund. Ooh, close fight. And in the end, Randy determined who their winner is. Emily, let him know who it is. The winner and still champion of the fight, Randy Carricker. The fight sponsored by Ryan Kelly and HeroLoan.com. Check out how they help veterans and service members at the new and improved HeroLoan.com. Randy back on top today. He takes the victory, beating Nick 2-1. to one. Tough fight. 
Question number one was Coach K achieving the honor of being the all-time winningest coach in college basketball history. He achieved this feat on February 16th, 2019, after he beat NC State. Hmm. Danny Ainge played parts of three seasons with the Toronto Blue Jays while in college back in 1979 through 1981. Hal Greer is the 76ers all-time points leader with 21,568 points. Wow. I have never heard the name before that. <laughs> I, I didn't know who Hal Greer was. I didn't expect you to have a vast knowledge of 76ers trivia history. No. <laughs> anyway, and um, Tommy Edmond led the Cardinals in triples in 2019 with seven. Nick, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for playing. All right, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Nick. We do appreciate you joining us here on 101 ESPN. Michelle, Randy, and coming up, we're going to head to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line and our Blues insider, Jeremy Rutherford from The Athletic has a very interesting piece up about uh, what we can expect in the expansion draft and more. He's got his mailbag up, and that's next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. It's time for the Rutherford Report on 101 ESPN. Anything you folks want to know about the fascinating world of pro hockey, here we go. Our Blues insider Jeremy Rutherford joins us here on 101 ESPN via the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. And JR obviously can have his work read in The Athletic. You need to subscribe to The Athletic at theathletic.com. JR, you've been doing this job for a long time, whether it was covering the University of Illinois or covering the Blues uh, or covering the Rams as you, you did. Um, Michelle and I were just talking about how she's going to travel next week and going to spend so much time actually in the air. It used to be back in the day when we had, uh, this was even after TWA and Ozark, you used to be able to f- cover a Denver Broncos game, Rams at Denver, fly in on the Sunday morning of the game, cover the game, and fly home on Sunday night. There's no way you could do that now. No, there's not. And I don't travel as, as nearly as much as I used to, Randy and Michelle. Uh, but uh, those last few years that, that I was covering almost every road game, it was amazing. Like I would try to book a flight to Columbus and I would have to go through O'Hare to get there or, you know, some short flight and you're making two or three connections. So yeah, the, what once was a big hub is certainly not the case anymore. Yeah. Sometimes you yeah, have, you're better off driving. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And we've done that like Nashville. We don't even think about flying that one, jump in the car and, and drive down to Nashville and sometimes uh, Chicago too, up and back. So, um, you know, long, long gone are those days, Randy, right? No doubt. Well, Jer, there's a, a long list of questions that the Blues need to answer this offseason. And at the top or near the top for me is Vladimir Tarasenko. What do you think the Blues are thinking about Vladimir Tarasenko and his value? And do you think there's a chance they leave him unprotected? Yeah, so it's pretty multifaceted. First of all, you got to think about the uh, situation. What can he do? Can he help you? You don't want to trade a player who all of a sudden maybe he can score you 25, 30 goals. Do I think he's going to be that player in the future? Probably not, but the Blues have to assess that. So after that, you have to evaluate, are there any trade uh, situations out there? Talking to teams, that's what Doug Armstrong does best, talks to a lot of teams. You know, is there interest? Can they move them? Is there a player on the other side that the Blues would want that could help them more than they think Vladimir Tarasenko could help them? Then finally, you have the 
expansion situation. Do you leave him unprotected? I think there's a couple reasons you don't. I think number one is uh, if he doesn't get selected, you've got a sour player. And obviously you can have conversations with him about that. But I think uh, that would leave a sour taste in Vladimir Tarasenko's mouth. And then you have him for two more years. And I mentioned this a week or so ago, guys, that uh, Vladimir Tarasenko left agent Mike Liute. Mike Liute is really good friends from his Hartford days with Ron Francis, the Seattle Kraken general manager. So do they have a conversation where they say, hey, maybe you want to stay away from this guy? Who knows? Uh, All I know is that the chances of him actually getting selected are probably pretty slim. So the best route, if the Blues wanted to entertain the idea of moving Vladimir Tarasenko, would most likely be a trade. Now, that being said, if you do protect Vladimir Tarasenko, does that mean you, and I hate the idea of this, does that mean you have to leave Barbashev exposed and do you think Seattle would take him? If I were Seattle and I was looking at the Blues list, I think that Barbashev would be the most attractive guy to me. Yeah, I think uh, if you're talking about protecting Tarasenko, which which I was, then uh, Barbashev would be exposed uh, because uh, if you're going to protect, you got to protect Cairo, you got to protect Thomas. Uh, Perron, as we've mentioned, is, is definitely a guy you protect. And then uh, Sunquist is the big one. Now, keep in mind, Sunquist is coming off the, the torn ACL surgery, and also he had surgery on his hips that were bothering him prior to uh, last season. So he's coming off uh, quite a substantial surgery uh, there. So will he be the same player? You hope he will. I think, though, at that price tag, you have to protect him because he would get gobbled up. So, mm-hmm. yes, you're right, Randy. It would leave Barbashev exposed. Jared, I want to circle back to what you said about Vladimir Tarasenko and a trade and that potentially being the best option for Doug Armstrong and the Blues. What do you think the appetite is around the league for Vladimir Tarasenko? It's a great question. Uh, so you can write that on the uh, board there. That's another <laughs> great question. Uh, I heard one yesterday, too, so you should be leading in that department. I actually uh, am by, I think, <laughs> three right now. So thanks, Jared. You just upped it to four. <laughs> yeah, it is, though. And, and I have the same question. What is the value, you know, uh, around the league? He's had the three surgeries. He comes back. He scores, what, just four goals in 24 games, you know, waits until the third period before kind of comes alive with two goals in that Colorado series. And he said throughout the end of the year that his timing wasn't there. So obviously timing is something that's going to eventually come. He goes to the world championships. He had a shootout goal, I think, and assist the other night in his first game with Russia. So the games are definitely going to help him. But I've put that question out to people around the league, and, and they believe that there would be a few teams who would sniff around on Vladimir Tarasenko. So I, I, I don't have a lot of information. I just want to say that I don't think it's a situation where 30 other teams say no thanks. JR, you have been talking a lot about Jaden Schwartz, and with the flat cap and with what his salary was, there's no way if I'm the Blues that I offer him what he was making before. The question then becomes, with the flat cap, is there another team that's willing to match based on his production, what he has made in the past from the Blues. I don't see that team out there either. Yeah, I think that's that's interesting. I do think he could probably be close to what he's making outside. I think there's going to be teams that are going to look at uh, the analytics and, and, you know, tough to explain in a phone interview here, but they have been really good over the years. And, you know, teams are always looking for tenacious players, dogged defenders, guys who – you know, they're on the ice for more goals for than they are against. But here in St. Louis, we've seen a situation with Jaden where the offense has been just big time inconsistent. And so, you know, I think if you're the Blues and there have been other players, I think, on this team who've taken less to kind of stick around, if Jaden Schwartz wants to take 
five, five, two, which would be less than the five, three he made last year, then I think they find a place for him. If James Schwartz is, wants to be five, five, if, if he thinks he's a $6 million player, then I think he's going to test free agency. And I agree with you. And that I don't think he's going to get $6 million even on the open market with that flat cap and with that inconsistent offense. Jared, maybe it's because they're the team that we saw the most recently bounce the Blues from the postseason, or maybe it's because they're the best team in the league. But I look at the Colorado Avalanche as the standard. How far away do you think the Blues are from being competitive, truly competitive with a team like Colorado? Well, I, I sat at the brunch yesterday morning with uh, David Perron, friend of the show, by the way, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Big time. <laughs> and I asked him that question, and he said, not far. So if a friend of the show you got to believe him right yeah <laughs> so we believe dp57 he, he's you know he just feels that you're never as far away as it looks and he pointed to the blues just not doing some things that they did uh this year just not playing the way that they needed to play and and he, and he also said look at what doug armstrong has done whenever it looks like the blues are going to take a step back they're going to lose a david backus you know they bring in somebody else. They've lost a couple players over the past couple of years, and Alex Petrangelo, he brings somebody else in. He, he's always trying to, to take that step forward. And David Perron, he said, I have faith in Army. I firmly believe he's going to do what he needs to do this year. So he felt like a combination of some retooling uh, with the roster and also playing, just playing better hockey than they played this year. And then I guess we have to throw in being healthier than they were last year. That's uh, David Perron's rationale for why he thinks that they're closer than a lot of us probably think. We talked about Tarasenko. Do you think there's a move to be made in the top six? And I asked Army about that because it's my belief that the moves to be made are in the bottom six. But when you look at O'Reilly and Shen are your centers, apparently you're going to have Tarasenko and Perron as your top six right wingers. And then if you bring back Schwartz, you need to find a left wing. Maybe it's Costin, maybe it's not. Do you think there's a move to be made there? I think there has to be. I think they have to entertain the idea of a couple of things, Randy. If it's not, and I know this would be uh, headline news here, but maybe Vladimir Tarasenko moves to the left side. I know he likes playing his uh, off wing. He's been on the right side. David Prahn, we know he likes playing on that right side as well. But one of those guys, I think, is going to have to move over to the left side. And when David Prahn leading your team in points, playing that side, I think he deserves to stay where he's at. So do you go to Vladdy and ask him about playing that left side? Clint Costin, you like the upside, but I don't know that you can go into the season penciling him into the top six. So to me, I've said this time and time again in the past couple of weeks, I think that even if you bring Jaden Schwartz back, you have to find somebody on that left side uh, in the top six. It can't be just Jaden Schwartz because if you don't get the offense, you're not getting any offense then from your top six uh, left wingers. It's been Zach Sanford, Sammy Blay, Ivan Barbashev. Ryan O'Reilly, David Braun need help on that line. They're not getting it, and Doug Armstrong's going to have to address it. And if they want to have, if they're going to keep Shen at center, and they, they want to have Robert Thomas in the top six, the fact of the matter is, he's played his best NHL hockey on the wing. He has, and uh, you know he's going to have to take that step, and he didn't do it last year. They went into training camp. I remember talking to Craig Bruby a couple days before camp started. I said, are you giving Robert Thomas a chance? In the top six at center, he said yes. You know, he got a great opening night, but we know that he didn't get off to a great start, and then he had a couple injuries. So I think if he's healthy, you give him the benefit of the doubt a little bit. But he's to me, he's got to come grab that. It just can't be given to him. If he wants to play third-line center, if he wants to play, you know, on the wing and produce and then show he can play in the middle in the top six, then you give it to him. But to me, on this team, Ryan O'Reilly and Braden Shen are your two centers until somebody pushes them out. 
Jer, it feels like just yesterday that the Blues won the Stanley Cup, but now here we are, two postseasons, two early exits, two teams that didn't live up to expectations for one reason or another. And I know that Craig Bruby was the guy that transformed the Blues and that the guys in the dressing room have a lot of respect for him. But professional coaches oftentimes have a short shelf life. And when you look at this season with a team that struggled to find their identity and at points, Craig Ruby felt like his messaging wasn't getting through, that he kind of took a step back and had the assistant coaches be the pervasive voice at times. I'm just wondering if Craig Ruby is still the force in the locker room that he once was. I, I think he is. Uh, and I'm not saying that uh, gets extended two more years. I think at this moment, he still is. Again, to fall back on that David Prime conversation yesterday, I asked him that. What do guys think about Dave, uh, what, about Craig Bruby? And he said, still love him, still love the assistants. You know, we feel confident in our staff. That's not to say there won't be any changes with the assistant coaches uh, this summer. There could be. But the faith in Craig Bruby is still there. And, you know, this is a, a tough conversation because I feel like uh, – when I bring these things up, it's making excuses. And the first thing you do as a reporter, you bring these things up and, you know, the hounds come out that you're making excuses for the team. I firmly believe that if not for the pandemic, this team goes into that postseason pre-pandemic and probably has a pretty good run. And how would things be different? But that didn't happen. And now you have a situation where they had to play up in the Edmonton bubble. And, and yes, everybody else did, but the Blues, it didn't work for them. And then you come back this year and you have a, a ton of injuries. So to me, I want to see Craig Bruby coach a healthy team that gets a little bit retooled in the offseason. And if the intensity is not there, they're still struggling in the second period. They're still losing home games. Then we definitely need to have this conversation. I just don't feel like they're there yet. JR, one more thing. I'm a fan. I want Gabriel Landeskog at left wing, and I want the Blues to get Jack Eichel. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, you, you sound like my Twitter feed right now. <laughs> <laughs> Any, uh, I, I, I have said here a million times already, I'm – Aside from the fact that Eichel is making $10 million and Carey Price just became the first $10 million player to win a playoff round, uh, aside from the fact that he, he's got that salary and the term of that salary, he's also got a bad neck. I'm concerned about him. And I have to believe that if Rantanen's making $9.5 million with Colorado and they have cap space, that Landeskog is going to be a $9.5 million player. I think he's got to be, and uh, while I do think you know it's hard to predict these things, we saw that with Alex Petrangelo's situation you know, it seems like it could get worked out, but for reasons that you just mentioned, you know, Rantanen's salary, they're going to want McKinnon to be the captain. Uh, a couple of people have pointed that out, uh, that Landis God may be the guy that, that gets moved. And, and to me, I think you're right, Randy. I think if, if you had your choice, Eichel or Landis God, as great as Jack Eichel is, and he could, wow, make this team look even more deep up the middle, uh, I think Landis God is the guy that you'd want. You need that left winger. You need a guy who can score, a guy who can play with top players, and a guy who, if he has to, you know, be physical, drop the gloves every once in a while. We've seen that from Landis God. So, uh, you know, Doug Armstrong is going to have some cap situation in the next couple of years can they fit an eight nine million dollar gabriel landeskog into the uh, lineup you know i think they can but it's going to come at the expense of one or two of these other players jr great stuff as always thanks so much we love reading your work at the athletic and we'll talk to you soon yeah peace coming out on dave prime just a little bit looking forward to it we'll read it that is jeremy rutherford on 101 espn coming up you're killing me smalls we're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. <laughs> 
It is time for... You're killing me, Smalls. Big news out of college basketball yesterday, Randy. Mike Krzyzewski, of course, the head coach of Duke basketball. He's the winningest coach in Division I men's basketball history. He led the Blue Devils to five national championships and 41 seasons, announced that he's going to retire after the 2021-22 season. And associate head coach John Shire, he played, of course, for Coach K from 2006 to 2010, has been named his successor. It's really hard to follow a legend, and when you look at... Bill Guthridge following Dean Smith. And when you look at Gary Cunningham following John Wooden at UCLA, even Quinn Snyder following Norm Stewart at Missouri, it's really difficult, even if you're ingrained in the program, to maintain the excellence of the program. I have trouble believing that anybody is going to be able to do do with Duke what Coach K has done with them over the last 40 years. It's incredible. Since 1980, Coach K has won five national championships. He went to 12 Final Fours. He won 12 ACC regular season titles, 15 ACC tournament championships. He's, of course, a Naismith Hall of Famer. He um, is in the College Basketball Hall of Fame. And he, of course, led Team USA to gold medals at three Olympic Games and two other world championships. And no one's ever going to top that resume. He's singular when it comes to that. But I think the appointment of Shire is interesting because when Coach K talked about it, of course this season is going to be a transition period, but keeping the culture the same at Duke was very important and I think there's a lot of external options you could have looked at. I know a lot of people talked about Brad Stevens and the regard that Coach K holds Brad Stevens in. And if he was ever going to leave the NBA, a job like Duke would be mm-hmm. the thing for for him to jump at, especially now if he's obviously already making a, a different transition anyway. But I think having someone who knows what Duke basketball means, who's been ingrained in the program at many different levels as a player, as a coach, Shire was one of the guys that recruited Jason Tatum. He has great relationships with a lot of the star alumni that play in the NBA who have come out of Duke. And I think consistent consistency in that program is key. And I think he's a great pick. Yeah. Maintaining the culture there is huge. By the way, another name that popped up yesterday during the day before Shire was officially announced was Quinn Snyder, who was Mike Krzyzewski's right-hand man. He was the next seat before he was hired at Mizzou. But obviously they feel like they have their guy and North Carolina feels like they have their guy in Hubert Davis. But as coaches have said, that 18 inches might as well be 100 miles. That's a big difference between one chair and the main chair. Absolutely. And what is college basketball going to look like without Mike Krzyzewski, without Roy Williams? I I don't think that all of a sudden North Carolina and Duke are going to fall off. I mean, they're obviously mm-hmm. premier programs, but you're losing massive star power in college basketball. And with the way the game has already shifted with one and dones and with now the G League and these different options for players and with the way recruiting is, it, college basketball just isn't the same as it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. It doesn't have the same cachet. And I wonder if losing two greats like that in college basketball, what's the future of college basketball going to look like? And I wondered if they're looking ahead at two things. Number one, the fact that the NBA is going to go back to drafting out of high school. The one and done is not going to be a part of the equation anymore. And then the name likeness image levels the playing field because everybody will be able with name likeness image to provide finances Mm -hmm. for players. 
Who are the stars though? Though now is Jay Wright? Is it Tony Bennett? Who who are the obviously Mark Few mm-hmm. is one of the guys. I would who, throw Jawan Howard in the mix. Yep, you have to. But Chris Holtman did a great job at Ohio State. Do we know Chris Holtman if we're walking down the street and he's walking the other way? Absolutely not. We know Coach K. We know Roy Williams. But we know them because of the longevity. Yeah, right. And there are openings now for stars in college basketball, stars among the coaches. I'll be interested to see who winds up being the guy. And I'm also interested now with the departure of those two, Williams and uh, Coach K, to see what Coach Cal is able to accomplish. I'm, I'm with you. I, I do think that Duke and North Carolina, they obviously have the tradition. They have the proven track record and the ability to take a player and turn them into an NBA product. That's never going to go away. And it's not as if Roy Williams and Mike Krzyzewski aren't going to be involved in the yeah. program. They're certainly going to be able to lend a hand that way when it comes to recruiting. But I do wonder if there's going to be a drop-off when it comes to players now. Because a lot of players automatically want to go to Duke, not because of what Duke is, but because they want to play for Mike Krzyzewski. And I wonder if that opens the door for other programs to maybe steal away some kids who might second guess going to Duke or North Carolina because there's no Roy Williams and because there's no Mike Krzyzewski. I have to believe that that's the case, especially with Coach K. I, I believe that players went to Duke specifically to play for Coach K. I mean, this is a guy who coached LeBron, he coached Kobe in, in the recent past. In addition to all the championships, he coached the very best of the best. Mm-hmm. And if you're a kid, you say, wow, that's pretty cool. Of course. You're killing me, Smalls. Saw this headline, and I wanted to throw it at you quickly. I figured you'd love this, Randy. So Chris and Cavallari, Jay Cutler, they're getting divorced. And Jay Cutler, as you know, lucrative career in the NFL, mm-hmm. made millions, but During this divorce, he wants half of Kristen Cavallari's lifestyle company, Uncommon James. And so their their divorce has hit a roadblock, not official yet, because he wants half of her money. He has historically had one of the most punchable faces in sports, has he not? (laughs) Oh, yes. Does this not make it even more? Smoking Jay Cutler. Exactly. Does this not make it even more punchable? Don't you want to punch him for this? Yes, but I just don't know if the face could get more punchable. Do you know what I mean? It's already very punchable. Now you just add the personality to the mix. If we didn't already know about his personality, he seems like the most eminently punchable human being on the face of the earth right now. He's up there. Yeah, come on. You you, you made $100 million in the NFL. You don't need her money. Come on. It seems like a principal thing. I think it's just a bitter thing. (laughs) I think so, too. You might be right there. Thanks, Michelle. You got it. That is You're Killing Me Smalls on 101 ESPN. Coming up, uh, we've talked about it, and now we're going to actually put it on the air. Uh, The players the Cardinals had but gave up on and are killing it for other teams' power rankings 1.0. Coming your way on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Carriker and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Players the Cardinals had. Gave up on, but are killing it for other teams. Power rankings 5.0. There are a few of these, Michelle. Let's get things started. Number 11. That would be former Cardinal Stephen Piscotty, now of the Oakland Athletics in the last week. Six for 15, doesn't have a homer, has an RBI on the season, has a 654 OPS and a war of negative 0.3 Stephen Piscotty is at number 11 
Number 10. Number 10 on this list, Randy, is Marco Gonzalez. He returned from a forearm strain. He made his first start in five weeks and looked every bit the part as Seattle's number one starter. He looked amazing in his last seven days, four innings pitched. He's only given up two hits and a run. And he looks like someone that the Cardinals could certainly use right now. Yeah, they could use a starting pitcher. All right, it is time for number nine. And because he hasn't been hurt, and Marco Gonzalez has, we're going to go with Austin Gomber, the former Cardinal left-hander, now of the Rockies, in the last week, had a start. He allowed five hits, only two earned runs, both coming on solo homers. He struck out five and walked only one. Austin Gomber is having a pretty darn good year for those Colorado Rockies, and he is number nine. Number eight. Another guy the Cardinals could certainly use, Randy, is Sandy Alcantara, who looks amazing and very dominant for Miami. He's developed a new weapon. He revamped his changeup, and it's completely changed his arsenal. In the past seven days, six innings pitch, he's given up nine hits, four runs, and wish he was wearing the birds on the bat right now. Yeah, he would help. (laughs) Number seven. Number seven is a guy that we probably would have on the bench, but we have such a good bench, I don't know. Well, maybe not. Donovan Solano, San Francisco Giants. In the last week, 5 for 22 with a couple of homers, 6 RBIs. He struck out 5 times on the season, Michelle. He's hitting 258, 2 homers, 10 RBIs into 685 OPS. He's been a very successful second baseman for the Giants this year with a war of 0.1. Donovan Solano is number 7. Number 6. He was assumed to be the heir apparent to Yadier Molina for years. But with Yadi still playing at a high level and not going anywhere, there was no room for him. So the Cardinals decided to part ways with Carson Kelly, who comes in at number six. And I'm not even going to give the slash line for the past few days. Let's just go back to Sunday's game versus the Cardinals when Kelly goes two for four with an RBI, a, a run, and a walk. Yeah, he's, he's pretty good. But he, again, wouldn't be playing here. And we like having Paul Goldschmidt on our side. Yes. Number five. You knew it was coming. Randy Rosarena <laughs> in the last seven days, just three for 24, no homers, a couple of RBIs and 12 strikeouts. But on the season, hitting 254, seven homers, 27 RBIs, a 745 OPS at a 1.8 war. And oh, by the way, hit like 1,700 home runs last year in the playoffs. Randy Rosarena is number five in this week's power rankings. Number four. Number four goes to none other than Adolis Garcia, mm. who produced a slash line of 312, 348, 633, and 981 over 28 games last month. Oh, and by the way, he led the majors with 11 home runs in May. Oh, and he had 27 RBI. The Cardinals uh, didn't see a spot for Adoles Garcia here, but he is thriving elsewhere, Randy. Thriving he, he is for the thri- Rangers. Thriving, and he's only number four. Number three. Number three, he ran over one of his fellow outfielders yesterday, but he's Playing lights out. Tommy Pham in the last week, Michelle, nine for 28, a couple of homers, four RBIs on the season. He's on the rise, hitting 224 homers, 17 RBIs, and a 684 OPS, an 0.7 war. Tommy Pham moves into the three slot for our power rankings. Creeping up to number number two. A former Randall, Randy, tuxedo t-shirt Randy, yep. Randall Gritchuk. Last seven days, nine for 25, two home run, four RBI. And uh, by the way, last night, he went two for five, two solo home runs, helped propel the Blue Jays to a 0-6-5 win over the Marlins. And on the season, Michelle hitting 286, 11 homers, 41 RBIs, and an 833 
OPS. Now, some names that have been left out. We have to, because of his uh, arrest, we have to leave Marcel Ozuna. Luke Voigt's been injured all year. He's only hitting 182 with a homer and a 530 OPS. So uh, Luke doesn't make the cut here in our, our power rankings. Magnuris Sierra doesn't either, even though in the last week he has gone three for seven on the year, only a 582 OPS. And that brings us to number one. Oh, my goodness. Not only does he lead our power rankings, but he leads our power rankings as a member of the Chicago Cubs. Uh, Michelle, it's Patrick Wisdom. uh, In the last week for the Cubs, he is 10 for 21, four homers, five RBIs for the season, hitting 435 with the four homers and five RBIs and an OPS of 1.458 at the top of our Former Cardinal power rankings. Players the Cardinals have but gave up on and are killing it for other teams. Patrick Wisdom is number one. Kind of like our third baseman, though. Yeah, our our third baseman is doing fine. And so is our first baseman. It's kind of the outfielders that bother me. Or the pitchers. Yeah, we could use some pitching right now, too. Again, you had to give up Gombert to get... uh, Arenado. You had to give up Alcantara. And at the time they made the Arozarena trade... Or the... uh, that did not, not work out. has not worked out well. The Ozuna trade, I liked the Ozuna trade the day they made it. He was coming off a year where he had 324, 37 homers, 124 RBIs. He won a silver slugger and a gold glove the year before he came here. And they had two years of control. So I liked the Ozuna trade the day that they made it. It did not work out particularly well. And I will tell you this. On the day they made the Ozuna trade, I would have rather had him than Christian Yelich. That day, yeah. Yeah. Now, what happened after that, not so no. much. And I think during that time, if you looked at those three, Cardinals fans had their sights set on Stanton. Yeah, they did. No doubt about it. And that was pretty much the same package that the Cardinals would have given up for Stanton. And uh, two others that we didn't put on the list because they're injured. Zach Gallen headed to having Tommy John surgery with the D-backs, and he was also a part of the Marlins trade for Ozuna. And Luke Weaver is on the 60-day deal with a strained shoulder, and he, of course, was also part of the Goldie trade. And a lot of people wondering if the list is incomplete. People are asking about Joe Kelly and Colton Wong and Lance Lynn, which you could all make an argument for to put on this list as well. Yes. uh, Wong, obviously, the Cardinals had control, gave up control. Uh, Joe Kelly, part of the trade for John Lackey. And Lance Lynn, guys that leave as free agents of their own volition, I'm not putting on there. Uh, I could find a way to put Wonger on there, but guys that leave as free agents, I'm, we're just not counting at the moment. And Joe Kelly was kind of, you, you could put him on there. Even though both of those guys wanted to return to St. Louis and the option just wasn't really there, right? Exactly. Well, the Cardinals had the option. I think with Lance Lynn, I'm not so sure that he wanted to come back and pitch for Mike Matheny. True. They, they didn't I have thought him. Danny Mack said that We'll have to ask him tomorrow. Yeah, he loves St. Louis. Yeah. And it took forever for him to get signed by the Twins to a one-year deal. But I I don't think that there was an option for him to come back with who the manager was at that point. Good point. Now, this (laughs) is a sliding scale. So next week, we will unveil the list 2.0. Patrick Wisdom could fall off the cliff in the next week, right? He could fall from number one to number 10 in a blink. A guy to keep an eye on, Tommy Pham. That collision yesterday, I believe he had to get stitches in his chin. Mm-hmm. He was heated after that collision. Yeah. You saw him getting into it, the third ba- base coach and the dugout. I wouldn't be surprised to see old Tommy Pham take that fire and maybe catapult himself up to the top of these rankings. The players the Cardinals had but gave up on but are killing it for other teams' power rankings 1.0. And, Michelle, I want to throw one other thing out there. 
And that is, we talk about mistakes the Cardinals have made and guys that we would like to have. I wonder if the Blue Jays ever say, why did we sign George Springer with the way Grichik is performing? Interesting, yeah. Because he hasn't played for him, and Grichik is performing every bit as well as they would have expected George Stringer, Springer to perform. So I wonder if they're looking at that kind of like saying now, we really didn't need to do that. We've got all these good young hitters. Maybe we should have signed a pitcher. Yeah, pretty expensive choice, too. Yeah, really. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. And that is players the Cardinals had gave up on and are killing it for other teams. Power rankings 1.0. Next up, the commissioner of MLS, Don Garber, is in town today, along with uh, the St. Louis City SC director of sport, Luke Fonenstiel. They're going to join us in our next segment on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. <laughs> If it weren't for that pandemic, we would be a year away from St. Louis City SC playing soccer at the new stadium in downtown St. Louis. As it is, because of the pandemic, everything has been moved back a year, and the team is going to start play in 2023. We're going to talk to Lutz Fahnenstiel. He is the director of uh, the sporting director for St. Louis City SC and MLS Commissioner Don Garber in just a moment. But Michelle. We both had the chance to drive past the stadium downtown. What it is is incredible what they're doing. It's a bummer that we aren't getting it next year, but it is going to be pretty amazing once they get this franchise up and running. Everything that this organization has done so far, from the ownership group to assigning certain leaders within the club, has been a plus. They've done an amazing job of building what this team and what this organization is going to be. And I just think with that extra year, as impatient as we're going to be as fans to get into the stadium and to know who our players are and to cheer them on, I think that extra year is only going to benefit the club because it's going to give them a little bit more time to fine tune everything and make sure once the doors do open and that first game does get underway. Everything is perfection. And the Cardinals and the Blues have done a magnificent job of getting young people integrated into their sport, haven't they? The, the Blues have the youth programs and the women's league, and obviously the Cardinals have built so many ballparks, but this is going to be a different situation altogether. And we go to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line right now, and the sporting director for St. Louis City SC, Lutz Fahnenstiel, along with the commissioner of MLS, Don Garber, are with us on Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. Gentlemen, with Michelle Smallman, this is Randy Carriker. Thanks so much for taking some time, and good morning. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great here, and uh, it's great to chat with you. This is Don. Well, Don, uh, first question goes to you. How taken aback were you by the progress that St. Louis City SC has made in regards to the stadium? Well, you know, I've used this uh, expression to say it's both uh, shock and pride. (laughs) You know, the shock is just how how massive the project is, how much work has been done in such a short period of time. I mean, this was a major undertaking going under, you know, a major highway and, and in essence kind of rebuilding a portion of downtown. And the pride is just uh, what this is going to represent for the city of St. Louis and for the club and for Major League Soccer. So uh, there, there's a lot of enormous uh, momentum, and, and we're really excited about it. 
One thing that has to be really attractive, Don, about the stadium is the location, where it is downtown. And I know that St. Louis City SC has made it a point to say that they're part of the neighborhood and they want to attract people and make it an all-encompassing experience. And I have to think, if I'm sitting in your seat, that makes it attractive for people outside St. Louis, that they're going to want to come and not only check out the team and watch their team play, but have a great time and spend some time in St. Louis as well. You know, it's, it's such a good point. You know, you think about pro sports and the major leagues and, you know, the downtown stadium for, for you know, the hockey team and for the Cardinals. They're just part of the of the community, and, and people just know they're going to go to a game, they're going to go downtown, they're going to go to a bar or a restaurant. You know, we're building uh, stadiums in our league brick by brick and having to come in as the youngest uh, major league, now just in 26th season. And, you know, you're almost starting from scratch and developing these facilities. And it's very important for us, like the other league, to be part of the urban core, to be, you know, a, a part of what the city can uh, turn to with pride and say that we're we're here to kind of raise the aspir- hopes and aspirations of people both in town but also in and around the region. Uh, so, so far, so good. The soccer Don, the commissioner of MLS, Don Garber, with us on 101 ESPN. And Lutz Fonenstiel. Lutz, how are you doing this morning? Very well, thank you. How are you? Good. And we want to get to Don, and you gentlemen heard we, us talking about right off the bat how uh, St. Louis City SC wants to get kids so involved in Lutz. I know that's been one of the big projects for you early on is building a, a youth program that's supported by our MLS franchise. How is that coming along, and what's the response been like? Yeah, I think the whole community system so far really started off well. You know, I mean, the big goal is to really uh, have the community players uh, slowly moving towards become academy players. So we're really starting off now with our satellite locations. We're starting off with the community programs. And I think the way we are received out uh, in the community, and, and I believe that the soccer community is, 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 is not just uh, uh, people who are involved actually right now in the organized game, but we have to be literally everywhere to, to promote a beautiful game. And, and I think to go to schools, to go to different locations, but also have the different clubs uh, involved works really well. I, I always feel welcome wherever we are. And I think it's really important to create this relationship with everybody in the soccer community. And Don, as other teams around MLS perform the same way as they build youth programs. How does that manifest itself for the franchises 10, 15 years down the road? Your, your league has been around for uh, 25 years now. Are, are you seeing the, the interest of young people that you have had in camps being realized in ticket sales and in interest? Well, you know, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, there's really two facets to this, you know, and Luce is very focused on ensuring that this great soccer city with with such terrific uh, competitive history could have a, an, an organized professional pipeline that could connect the clubs that already exist and uh, put them under the umbrella of MLS Next and create a more uh, structured environment to be sure that America, through our clubs, is develop, are developing better players. And in the next five to ten years, I think you're going to see uh, more and more American players performing at the highest level and starring in their local teams and then even performing for our national teams. And then another byproduct is, is fan development. I mean, obviously we know with all the leagues, there's a deep collect connection between participation and fan avidity. And the more that we can get out and have our teams and their brands embedded in the community, the more that will 
uh, pay dividends as it relates to creating a generation of new fans. Speaking of fans, I think the biggest challenge for St. Louis City SC fans right now is patience. Everyone is so excited about this team. Can't wait for the first game to happen, but that's a few years away. And Lutz, I know that you are really focused on developing the foundation of this club and developing the academy, but a lot of fans ask us, so I want to present the question to you. When will the roster start to take shape and how does that process look like? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the professional setup when we when we kick off in 2023, I think we can't really do everything on a short notice. So we definitely will focus a lot on building the roster already in the in the course of 2022. So my main focus will be, uh, I would say, January, February, March 22 to really get uh, really detail about who will be on the market, who will be can sign early as early as possible, and using now that year of uh, of 2020. One, to really focus on the youngsters, but also figure out what young local players would actually fall under the, the project homegrown players, which we really can already uh, get involved into the pro setup. So um, we're very excited about that, but we definitely want to have a, a longer kind of uh, focus on the transfers. So I believe that the roster building will be a big part of 2020. And Don, it seems like, especially with the success that Atlanta enjoyed in their inaugural year in 2018, it seems like it's not unreasonable to expect a team to be competitive early on. Not that it's going to happen that way, but you have given your expansion teams a pretty good opportunity to compete early on. You know, it's a really good point. You know, remember, we're in an international market. So when you expand, it's not just adding one more team into the existing market and, and in essence, diluting the other teams to have players on your roster. Here there'll be some of that where uh, teams will, will have to not protect certain players and, and City will be able to select from that pool. But also you'll, we have an international market and then Lutz will be going out and scouting players in countries uh, all over the world and being able to uh, hopefully make the decision. So I think that's what happened in Atlanta's case. You know, their star players uh, primarily were ones that they – scouted from abroad, and they came in with a mix of existing MLS players, and uh, that, that formula worked pretty well. So, yeah, we, we, we want our new teams to do well. Every business, obviously, has been affected by COVID-19 and the pandemic, this one certainly being delayed a year. What have been the biggest effects on MLS because of the pandemic? Well, it's the obvious ones, right? We, uh, like all live uh, event businesses and ones that require, you know, direct interaction, restaurants, theaters, and the like, you know, it, it had a real challenging uh, impact on us financially and and organizationally and, and managing through the operational decisions that we needed to make to get our players uh, back on the field as quickly as we could after we suspended play in March and getting into the bubble in Orlando. And then after that, you know, five-week period getting back into our markets at the, the latter part of, of 2020. Uh, you know, health and safety protocols that we had to figure out as we were going along uh, and all of the things related to managing labor and managing relationships with our corporate partners and media partners. Uh, but we're at the outside end of that, uh, as you all know, and we're optimistic about where things are and getting fans back into stadiums all over the country. We're still managing our Canadian teams. They're based here in the United States for the time being. Uh, but we've got, you know, bounce in our step and, and optimism about what the uh, the latter part of 2021 is going to look like. 
And Don Garber, one more thing. As you spoke to us during the previous iteration of trying to get an expansion team here, and then obviously during the, during this process, you mentioned that you've always wanted to be in St. Louis. You used the word pride right off the bat. But how exciting is it for you to see this vision of yours now being there with the stadium going up in St. Louis? You know, it, it feels great. And, you know, as you know, you expect me to say it's a shared vision, right? Uh, we we always believed that St. Louis was a great soccer city. And I said at a breakfast earlier this morning with some business leaders, you know, when you when the league launched in 96, it's hard to imagine that St. Louis wasn't one of the original cities, just simply because of the history and, and the depth of support for this uh, game at all levels. Uh, but we needed a great ownership group. We have that now with the Taylor family. We needed a great stadium plan. We have that now with the downtown stadium project, and we needed the corporate uh, support uh, that we have uh, deeply. And that's now uh, uh, kind of moved into great fan support, you know, 55,000 individual ticket deposits, which is a remarkable number for, for any pro sports team. Uh, so we're excited. That, uh, I've got a, you know, a lot of optimism about what this is going to look like over the next year and a half. And you made a good point, both of you, that you know, there, there's still a year and a half to go. So the team has got work to do to engage with their fans, create more and more touch points uh, that uh, will allow them to connect with both those who are existing season ticket deposit holders, but also new fans both here and throughout the region. But I've got confidence in them, and uh, I think the best is yet to come. Well, we're very excited about it, and we appreciate you joining us, Commissioner Garber and uh, Sporting Director for St. Louis City SC, Lutz, Fon, and Steel. Gentlemen, thank you so much. We do appreciate it. Have a great day, and I'm sure we'll talk soon. Thank you very much. Enjoy it. Thank you. Take care. Uh, the commissioner of MLS, Don Garber, along with Lutz Fonenstiel, he is the sporting director for St. Louis City SC. And it is exciting. And yes, we are impatient because it's going to be a year and a half. But, Michelle, in my lifetime, we've never had a situation like this where we did have the ability to be impatient and wait for a team and a new stadium was going up. It was going to be it was supposed to work that way with the NFL, mm-hmm. but obviously we had to bring in an, uh, an existing team. But I think it's just awesome that this is going to be St. Louis's team and it's going to be our new stadium for our new team. And we're going to see it from its birth up until the time it wins a championship. Homegrown, 100%. Yeah, and that's the way they want to be. And by the way, having local ownership too. That yes. When the Blues started up, uh, that the Solomon family was not from St. Louis, and they went into the arena, which was built in 1929. And obviously, uh, we don't remember the, the Cardinals getting started. So in our lifetimes, this is the first time we've had an opportunity like this. And like I said during the interview, I think the biggest challenge right now is patience <laughs> because yeah. everybody cannot wait for this team. But think about any activation that they've had, whether it was announcing Purian as the founding sponsor and then they, they got the, the Dumb and Dumber van from the video, the Mutz Cuts van, and they drove all around giving swag to people throughout the city. They're doing a great job of keeping the fan engaged and excited. And I, I know it's going to be a big crescendo as we get close and closer to that first game. It's trite and overused. Used, but I will be trite, and I'll use an over overused term. They get it. They do. Well, they're St. Louisans, <laughs> of course they get it. Exactly. They're, they are us. They're sports fans, and they're St. Louisans. So why wouldn't they get it? <laughs> we are going to head you towards the top of the hour and the Dan McLaughlin Show featuring BK coming up next with Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Carriker and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Oh, 
Michelle, we get a uh, text asking where to go for dinner downtown before a cards game at a place that's not in Ballpark Village. You could go to Carmine's Steakhouse, which is really good in uh, downtown St. Louis. It's a short walk. So Carmine's Lombardo's over by Union Station. Really good uh, pasta if you'd like to go there. The Broadway Oyster Bar, you could oh, go there. So you've got love some, that spot. Yeah, you, you've got some options if you want to head downtown for a uh, nice meal before you head to the, the ballpark and it is not in Ballpark Village. And you can never go wrong, by the way, with Ballpark Village. Interesting note, Michelle, that... This morning, the USFL announced that it is relaunching in 2022. This was a league in the early and mid-80s. They signed Herschel Walker. He was the first non-senior to come out and play pro football. They had Reggie White, Steve Young, Jim Kelly. Took a lot of players from the football Cardinals, Curtis Greer, Louise Sharp, several others. It was a, a really fun and interesting league that was playing in the spring and then Multiple owners, one specifically, decided they wanted to move that franchise or that league to a fall league to compete with the NFL, and it had no chance in competing with the NFL. But we all know that the XFL is coming back in 2022, in the spring of 2022, and now there's going to be competition for our league, the XFL. And I, I don't know if the XFL is absolutely locked in to St. Louis for 2022. The new USFL is going to be owned in part by Fox Sports, and that's going to be their broadcast partner. That's intriguing, and I wonder how this does impact the XFL and what they're planning on relaunching. And the fact that Fox is partnering with them instantly gives them an amazing platform. To Obviously, Fox mm-hmm. knows, knows what they're doing with football broadcasts. So that's intriguing to me. Fox Sports CEO and executive producer Eric Shanks called the UFL's relaunch a landmark day for football fans and Fox Sports. Clearly, there are enough good players out there and there is enough interest in football to make this work if you don't plan on becoming cronkiest type type billionaires. You can make some money. You can draw some fans. You can get it publicized. You can get it out on TV. The problem that people have in sports is that they want to get rich quick off of it. And if they take their time, I think they can build a sport like MLS has built now, 25 years Mm -hmm. old, where you can have a pretty solid foundation and last for a while. Do you think that the XFL and the USFL can exist at the same time? I think that would be very difficult. I agree. Now, if the XFL has ESPN and the USFL has Fox... You both got your TV contracts and you do do it in different cities, you have a chance. But inevitably, what they try to do is have everybody wants teams in New York, L.A., Chicago. Correct. And that's where you have to understand what you are. You have to read the room. And if you do that, then I think you have a chance because with football, especially with a national TV deal, you don't need a team in L.A. Nobody cares about football in L.A. And you don't, in the middle of winter in New York, you don't need it in New York either. You can go to eight cities where you're going to draw well and have good stadiums and put it on national TV and still succeed. Well, I think the XFL may have learned that lesson when we they rebooted and we had the Battle Hawks here because St. Louis was kind of the shining star Definitely. Of, of the XFL in so many ways. Obviously, they had the fan support here, and it was just a very organic relationship between the team and the city. And I don't know if you necessarily got that in the bigger markets. And I think you're right. I think the XFL has an interesting opportunity because they have at least a small sample size of things that worked and that didn't work. And if I was the rock or 
or if I was rebooting the USFL or one of these spring leagues, I would look at that and I would think, what are some cities that have either been burned by the NFL and the appetite for football is still there or don't have a team but have a very rich football history? I'm looking at somewhere like Austin, Texas Mm -hmm. or somewhere else in the South that maybe somewhere outside of New Orleans in Louisiana. Louisiana loves football. They obviously love LSU football. It seems like there would be a match there, maybe in Baton Rouge. Birmingham, too. Birmingham, too. And I think that you're going to have much more success if you try to tap into a football hungry and a football ready market rather than trying to squeeze yet one more slice of entertainment into a bigger market. We will try to learn more about this tomorrow, but Dan McLaughlin's show is coming up. Great job today by our producer engineer, Emily Butcher. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. And Michelle, this was fun. Get ready for Friday already. I can't believe it's Friday. I know that's because we didn't have Monday. Yeah, I know. But I'll take it. I'll take tomorrow being Friday. (laughs) For all of us, we thank you for tuning in, texting in, and being a part of the show. Till tomorrow morning at 7. Have a great day, St. Louis. You've been listening to the Character and Smallman podcast, powered by I Promise. Hi, this is Chris Howard, host of Plugged In with Chris Howard. The college football playoff committee made their decision on Sunday, and as much as I loathe the idea of Ohio State losing their way into the college football playoff, I 100% agree with OSU making it in over Bama. Nick Saban citing some hypothetical point spreads to prove his point that the tie deserve a spot in the college football playoffs holds little substance when you consider Bama's best win is over Texas. No, the committee got it right. TCU had a great season with far more ranked wins than Bama and didn't deserve to lose their spot after playing a surging Kansas State in a championship game. And Ohio State, while not playing some of their best ball later in the season, was still 12-0 until they came face-to-face with my Wolverines. While the college football playoff system isn't nowhere near as good as it could be, it's better than what we had. And in a few years, it will be better for all of college football. Hi, this is Chris Howard, host of Plugged In with Chris Howard. Get the latest odds and trends for every professional and amateur league out there. From football to basketball to soccer and esports, we've got it all at BetOnline.net. And if you love sports podcasts, you can find those at BetOnline as well. And don't forget, BetOnline for the NHL, MMA, boxing, and golf. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more. BetOnline, where the game starts. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.